Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, e-commerce, it was white hot through COVID, but things might have cooled a little or perhaps the action has shifted. Consumers have swung back to physical retail stores with gusto and the online e-com juggernaut has hit a reality check. The pandemic's digital and e-com transformation wave is quickly moving to the next cycle. The crunchy stuff like e-com ROI and profitability, cost out, uniting tech stacks, back of house logistics and supply chains, customer first data programs and closing the customer loop and experience across channels. It sounds a whole lot less sexy than building and launching a fancy new online store but that is the new reality. Ecom is now having to sing for its supper, or at least that's my premise. On the customer and demand side, marketing and MarTech programs have a new world of access, insights, and transactions to tap. But to ensure that top-line opportunity is sustainable, there's a hell of a lot of focus underway in the engine room of businesses. On the mics today are four executives in the thick of Ecom's next cycle. L'Oreal's Chief Digital and Marketing Officer, Georgia Hack, Accenture Song Managing Director and ANZ Commerce Lead Peter Davius, News Corp's Director of E-Commerce Adam Cron, and Accenture Song's Managing Director and Technology Lead Josh Lamont. Welcome all. Uh, let's get into this. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Peter, maybe you could kick this off really with, with what's happened to the e-com freight train this year. How significant has this consumer return to physical stores impacted the almost feverish COVID flip to e-com? Or am I just um, barking up the wrong tree? Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Look, it's a really interesting question because I think that's the the part that everyone's sort of grappling with at the moment. But I think what I see is the the, the positive that's come out of the the COVID bump, which is really, if I look at what where e-commerce was pre-COVID, it was really up and coming, a little bit scrappy, a little bit underinvested in a lot of organisations, particularly brands, sort of seeing a bit risk adverse to making the real jump in investment to to online along comes covid accelerates that everyone who had a uh, e-commerce strategy you know, in the works or had done it three years ago dusted it off and they quickly built everything they needed and then they started selling online to capture everyone's excitement and needs at, at the time and then you come to now where a lot of organizations now, e-commerce has just, has just been normalized. And so I don't think it's necessarily declined as such as, as, as sort of the, how the industry sees it. I think what's happened is e-commerce is now, I think the E's kind of dropped from e-commerce and it's really just commerce more in general because I think what's happened now is consumers are just expecting brands to be able to fulfill their, their needs in all different channels. And so selling through a website or selling through a mobile app or selling through social is just becoming more evident now. So I think what's happened out of COVID has been an acceleration in capability of brands here, particularly in Australia. And I'd say there's also been a challenge to try and look at where to get the right skills. I think as the market has accelerated to more digital savvy uh, customers and organizations are looking at how they start to keep pace, trying to find the right talent and retain the talent has also been quite hard over the last couple of years. And I think just where I'm seeing sort of going sort of now is yeah, particularly in the e-com space now, a lot of organizations are going, well, how do we start to 
drive more profitable e-commerce growth. The investments are in now. It's time to sweat the investments a little, a little more. And it's about how to then start to you know, really, truly deliver great experiences for customers. How do you really do omni-channel? How do you then establish a, a, a loyalty program and grow that program? How do you look at new revenue streams now you've got a lot of customer data? So I think this is where the, the maturing of the, of the space is starting to come through. So what are the stats then, Peter? Um, what has been the change in e-com growth this year, for instance, and, and how is the share of overall sales? What's the ballpark at least? And some categories are back, aren't they? And some, I think we are talking earlier, it's a mixed pot in terms of what's actually happening with, with customer behavior online versus physical or, or spending full stop is another consideration to think about. What are the kind of the, the macro stats? Have you got something there? Yeah, so we saw sort of during the pre-COVID days, E-commerce penetration of, of total retail sales in Australia was around sort of hovering around the 8 to 10% mark. If you sort of fast forward to today, that's now about 18% of retail sales are driven through e-commerce as the primary sales channel. But that varies across category. So if you look at online grocery, if you look at what like Coles and Woolworths as an example, they are around the sort of the eight to 10, 10 to 11% share of online sales coming through through e-commerce channels versus retailers that are more advanced in their capabilities, you know, really drive customers to their online business are really seeing probably, you know, 25, 30% share coming through uh, their, their business. And then you've got, obviously, the more native digital players who obviously, you know, 100%, but really are more savvy. So the, the market kind of varies in terms of that mm. percentage, but the sort of core average is around 18%. There's been a little bit of growth in the last 12 months of around sort of 1, 1.5%. And I think that will sort of sustain for the next year or so. And I think we'll start to see, you know, the, the shift of that starting to grow more. And I think just in finishing that, I think what I see is, I think we're finally seeing the Amazon effect start to kick in here a little bit. Um, if I look at, um, some of the recent numbers from Kogan and, and, and Catch, both have been sort of down double-digit percentages in terms of their, their revenue and profitability. I mean, my sort of instinct is have those customers shifted to Amazon and is Amazon really starting to play a stronger role in driving the penetration of online? So I think we'll see is the Amazon effect start to hockey stick this back up. You mentioned profitability, or at least I did. I'm sure you did too, Peter. But that profitability, you certainly talked about in our previous convo. Profitability, what is the struggle there? Is it most are in profit, but not enough? Amazon, for instance, you know, we've talked about this. Amazon hardly makes a profit if it wasn't for some of the other businesses, the adjacent businesses they have. What hope have we all got if Amazon can't, can't make a buck? <laughs> Look, I think you can definitely make money in online. I think the challenge is always about how you start to manage your supply chain and get smarter about some of the inventory management, as an example. And if you look at what Adam's doing or has been looking at with News Corp around sort of affiliate models and looking at not holding inventory, these are examples where we're seeing organizations start to think think differently about online, where you don't need to take a lot of the risk when it comes to high capital intensive investments, such as warehousing and you know, managing a supply chain and so forth. So there are you know, new business ideas that we see around drop shipping and marketplaces, affiliate models, which really take a lot of the pressure off organizations. And then you look at the organizations that you know, don't have the, the, the liberty to establish those kind of drop ship models that are looking at really how to improve the way they 
optimize the picking and packing as an example, looking at how they set up their teams more efficiently as well. So how do they get more production and productivity out of their teams? So how do you think about reorganizing elements of your marketing team, your digital team, your e-commerce team, and starting to think about where you get efficiencies? Because not all cost is associated just at the at the supply chain level. It's about how you run. And then the other big area we see is technology stacks, particularly in the e-com space. There's a lot of sort of high cost capital investment and OPEX that is typically sucked up by IT programs, particularly mm. e-com. So the, the shift to composable and headless architectures, we actually see drives a, a total cost of ownership benefit of around about sort of 5 to 15% over the course of about three to five years for organizations that do make the, the leap into that sort of new wave of architecture. Sorry, just to be clear, the cost of ownership is 5 to 15% on what um, component was that, Peter? This is across your technology um, stack for e-commerce. So when we right. think about, about you know, the current investment today and, 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 and upkeep that's required, we see organizations that do move to composable or headless architectures typically save about 5 to 15%. Okay. And the total cost of ownership of that of that tech stack. So, and what are consumers doing then? Because they're behaving probably slightly different. What are their new expectations that ecom teams and businesses are having to adapt to? There is some shift going away and how they're underway and how they're behaving, right? Yeah, definitely. I think. I mean, obviously, where we are now in terms of the economic climate here in in Australia, you know, inflation, where it's at, interest rates really are hitting people quite hard. Definitely consumers you know, spend more broadly, not just in online, but more broadly has, has started to taper off, obviously. There are some categories where consumers are still spending, but there are other categories where they uh, reduce their spending. And we've seen you know, the spend patterns shift within there as well. So if I'm typically buying you know, premium products when I'm doing groceries, I'm, I'm going down to some of the more affordable levels as I need to manage my, my share of wallet. So that, I think, is having the biggest pinch right now for consumers is about how and where they spend. I think they're being a little more uh, conscious about about that. Um, and I think also just, you know, the sort of other side of it is we do see consumers being more purposeful in some of their decisions about spending. So who are they spending with? Do these organizations align to my values, particularly around sort of sustainability and the practices that the organizations stand for? So you've got brands like Shein, in the fast fashion space, it's more of a, a guilty purchase, I think. But I think a lot more consumers are starting to realize about, you know, not all things come for $2 delivered for free right, you know, yes. w- without an impact somewhere down the line. So there's a lot more conscious consumers out there, I'd say, today. Mm. And they are also still researching online, sometimes going more into store. Is that shifting around? Is that something new or, uh, you know, has that increased? And click and collect, all those things are all sort of floating in around and shifting too, aren't they? Yeah, so I'll say the, the biggest change post-lockdowns has been the, the boom in, in click and collect. And we see some organizations that have upwards of 80 to 85% of all of their online orders are click and collect here in Australia. So, And that's a huge percentage, right, of your online orders of consumers doing that. There are other brands here in this market that the website that they have today is, is predominantly a, a showroom for their retail stores. And so they really invest in building great website and showroom experiences to drive people or to help or aid people as they're shopping in stores. So we see a lot of that you know, research online coming to store, which has always been around for such a long time. But I think it's now becoming more evident. If you look at, say, Bunnings as an example, 
we know a lot of consumers that, that shop at Bunnings that have a high retail, physical retail penetration of their customers. A lot of their customers are, are browsing online before they go into store, looking at the wayfinding services that are available and using that to find items in the store. So the question is really just it's a bit blurred now about what is what is e-commerce and what is online. Because yeah. at the moment, you know, your phone is the online tool and you move with it. You might be at home you know, in the evenings on your phone and then the next day you're using it to shop better in Bunnings. Just really quickly, what is it about click and collect? Is, is Australia sort of disproportionately higher in click and collect than other markets or what's driving the the collect part of it rather than have it delivered? I'd say we're probably catching up to other markets, to be honest. Um, okay. The UK has been a real leader in click and collect for a long time. The US, you just got to look at what, say, Walmart and Best Buy, as an example, do over there. They provide so many different types of click and collect services. Like Walmart now can, uh, they can, what is I think they can actually deliver into your home. And if you, you can actually, with an Amazon doorbell, they can actually go into your house if you let them and they'll actually put the groceries into the fridge for you. Right. Um, so these are there are multitudes of levels. It's not just buy online and go collect it from a counter. Click and collect in other markets is actually far more expansive in terms of what you can actually do. So I'd say where we are in Australia, we've just gotten very mature at buy online, pick it up in store. But I think we've got a long way to go before we're doing what we're seeing over in the US and the UK. Really interesting. Um, now, Georgia Hack, L'Oreal is a really good example, I think, of the fast move to e-com through COVID. I think you launched eight or nine direct-to-consumer e-com sites in that period. What's the focus now after the that, that adrenaline surge, if you like, for you and L'Oreal? And I should add that your remit to uh, Georgia is very broad, right, from marketing, media, and consumer care to sort of loyalty loyalty programs, consumer insights, and, and e-commerce. Um, how much of your energy is on e-com at, at present, Georgia, and, and what's happened since um, you did the, the COVID sprint to digital transformation? Welcome, yeah, by the way. Welcome back. <laughs> thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, correct. We have actually launched nine D2C websites in the past three and a half years, so four during COVID and actually five pre-COVID. But also during that time, we launched four loyalty programs and six beauty tech services. I think the team did an incredible job to launch at speed, driving consumer demand, obviously, during that that key lockdown period. I think our focus now is definitely on how we profitably and sustainably grow our e-com business. And we look at this through a number of different areas. Obviously, the D2C element of which, as I mentioned, we have sort of nine websites, our pure player partner, as well as e-retailers. We're also looking at the role of e-commerce and how that plays that role within the the sort of consumer journey. Obviously, e-commerce, particularly D2C, gives us that branded, personalised one-on-one experience with our beauty consumers. And we're also looking at um, newer kind of commerce channels like social commerce as a key driver of growth going forward. So particularly around sort of profitably and and sustainably growing e-commerce, we're looking at ensuring we have the right channel mix going forward optimising our media mix and reach, um, enhancing our D2C experience with personalisation and services, obviously the CRM and loyalty acceleration and where that makes sense for key brands, and as I mentioned, um, social commerce as well. And to your point, my remit um, at L'Oreal is quite broad um, and it's a fantastic 
way to really drive innovation, transformation and excellence across our 32 brands in Australia. So my role encompasses consumer and market insights, e-commerce, advocacy and content, which is a new area of growth for us, um, consumer experience, which is consumer care, CRM and loyalty, um, as well as media. So e-com focus our business is very much maturing in this space. And I think for us, we can always draw on many global learnings for, from L'Oreal, not only within our Satmina market, but also globally. I also might add, we have very strong e-commerce talent now in this business. So my focus, yes, is, is around sustainably growing e-commerce, but very much also about how we might acquire and activate our 1P strategy via our new CDP, and then also how we sort of work that through in our media strategy. Um, and also, as I mentioned before, this new advocacy and content arm within it, within our team to really accelerate further in that space. So yeah, well, so there's a couple of questions there, George. I mean, I think the content side, which you sent is, is, is relatively new. There's a lot of movement in content sort of at the mid funnel to drive traffic to e-com, right? Is that part of your strategy with content is actually that approach? Absolutely. Well, with content, we're looking at you know, I said a number of key areas. One is that sort of high touch localized content. L'Oreal, as as you know, has 32 global brands. So we have a lot of sort of global content, but what we're finding within within a lot of the platforms within within Australia, and this is true globally, is that that kind of localized content is it drives more engagement, drives more connection with the audience. So it's how do we drive localized content at scale? And then I think on the e-commerce side, how do we um, drive efficiency in content production, particularly as we're driving a more one-to-one personalised experience? How do we ensure not around, you know, our content uh, ways of working, catching up with, the, I guess, the technology, which is driving a yeah, more personalised view? So we're looking at both that sort of high engagement content as well as that I guess, one-to-one personalised content that is more a product recommendation or something that's driven by a, a CDP engine, for example. Are you going to shoot me down like Peter, Georgia, in that I sort of set up the premise that there was a swing away from e-com to physical? What's your, how's yours holding up? So that pre-through COVID e-com volume, are you seeing your customers doing more click and collect or going into retail or are you seeing your e-com volumes and, and sales still increase, you know, significantly and how far off is it compared to through COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking, we, we saw exceptional acceleration through COVID. We're still seeing e-commerce as a growth driver of our business. Now we've got a level of maturity in D2C now. So it's really around how we might accelerate with our pure players and e-retailers going forward, but then looking at new channels, whether it be social commerce to sort of drive, drive that result. But absolutely the consumer shift has changed post-COVID. We're also seeing the in-store experience being you know, very important. And we've just done a touch point study actually to say that the in-store experience is key to not only driving conversion, but also brand equity. So how we show up within our key retailers being, yeah, obviously crucially important, notwithstanding that e-commerce will continue to evolve. And, it, you know, the channels might but might be new and different going forward, but we, we absolutely see it as a growth driver still. Thanks, Georgia. We'll come back on, on a bunch of stuff there. Adam Cron, first, you came from Catch Group. You've joined News Corp. Why is a publisher like News Corp getting so serious about e-com, Adam? It's a sort of, it's almost vaporware, isn't it, content? So how is News Corp seeing an opportunity there? And, and welcome to you too. Thanks, Paul. And thanks for having me on the, on the podcast. 
you know, News Corp has a huge digital audience and e-commerce is a growing industry. So I think there's, you know, an obvious opportunity to connect the News Corp audience to the e-commerce market. And, you know, we typically at News Corp have really serviced the media and brand marketing budgets, but there are huge digital marketing budgets out there, particularly in the e-commerce industry. I mean, many e-commerce, especially the pure play retailers, have the vast majority of their marketing money going to digital marketing solutions. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a big opportunity to find ways to access those digital marketing budgets. We want to do that by providing the type of performance solutions you can get by bringing in high intent audiences. And, you know, doing so, you know, better serves our existing clients as well, but also can broaden our client base to really service the e-commerce industry as a whole. So connecting that audience to the e-commerce industry is, is, is the key driver of what we're trying to achieve. And, and that intent thing you talk about, Adam, I guess if I was in the market for mascara, I'm not for the record, but if I was, um, yeah. you would be able to identify on your network that I was a, a mascara intender and that's where you might be able to hook up with you know, L'Oreal to say we've got a live prospect. That's the kind of scenario you're talking about. Is that what we're talking about here? Not exactly. There's probably uh, you know two, two strands to it. I mean, the first strand is we're making and investing in a lot of shopping content itself. So, you know, that's with news.com.au checkout, our new shopping section, and all our lifestyle brands. We're investing in creating a lot of content that's designed to help consumers at the research stage. So right. people looking for actual recommendations. So it's, it's an investment in content. And by doing so, you know, we're servicing consumers, and that content drives links directly to our retail partners who then, you know, transact and it's a win-win for our audience and our retail partners. But, you know, the, the second stream, which is what you're touching on, is that by bringing in these audiences who are at the research stage, we gather those signals and add them to our data platform, which we call Intent Connect, which then, yes, enables us to better target high intent audience for ads throughout our network. So there's right. the content itself, um, which is designed to help, the, you know, the consumer and that's, you know, the big investment where we're getting in those high intent audiences because they're actually, you know, looking for shopping content. But then the data we gather on these users can then help target um, ads throughout our network. And is that working, Adam? Are people actually, you know, uh, clicking through on, on the content recommendations that are happening across your, your audience network? Have you got absolutely. some volumes there? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a big growth area. It's, it's relatively new to Australia. So I think the Australian consumer is still got a long way to go in terms of understanding the value of this type of content in the us it's much more mature and it's probably something that's sprung up from like you know the amazon effect and the growth of marketplaces where there's just a huge amount of options huge amount mm. of choice you know we've touched on the extent to which research is a part of the shopping journey you know we're looking to tap into that part of the market yeah. by providing you know credible independent useful advice in an environment, you know, where if our retailers feature in our content, they're getting a performance solution through the links, but they're also, you know, in an environment that really enhances their brand credibility. And then, you know, using that to feed into an ad platform, Intent Connect, um, we're able to provide much more efficient ads as well to our clients. What is your, you know, affiliate or off network or what, how much do you send to retailers at the moment, Adam? And I'm sure you want to tell me all your numbers, but um, can you give us a sense of, of, of just how significant that business is? Are you, are you talking about tens of thousands of people, uh, millions of, you know, referral revenue to retail? Have you got a sense on that? No, we're driving millions of clicks. Millions of clicks. Uh, what, a, a month? A year. A year, a year. A year. right. Many millions. And that's growing. Is it? That's where you see more upside now. You're investing quite significantly more into this exactly yeah we're growing out our content base you know this content is unique in that unlike 
you know, in the moment news. This is content that we call it evergreen content. It lives on. So when you're, you know, creating a piece of content for the 10 best air fryers, uh, you know, we update it, we optimize the content, but, you know, that, that piece of content is available for people searching in Google long into the future. So, you know, as we grow our content base, we're servicing more and more research needs and, you know, the audience is growing, our, our authority is growing, um, we're growing the news.com.au checkout brand to potentially bring in more and more consumers to start their research journey, you know, within our environment. And I think as well, the market itself for this sort of content is going to continue to grow. So, yeah, it's, it's early days, really. Yeah, I know, I know you gave me no numbers there other than millions. Um, thanks for the insight there, Adam. It's very, very helpful. Boom. Josh, you're at the coalface of all this with your, your technology remit, right? It's all converging. And I think you argue it's perhaps why some companies are even appointing chief customer officers. Um, e-com is now running deep and wide in an organisation. What are the big hairy challenges um, you see companies grappling with at the moment? It has changed, I guess, um, Josh, in the last you know, 12, 18 months. Welcome to you too. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me um, on the pod. We're really seeing a convergence of capabilities uh, across the entire front office. So, you know, probably stepping back 36 months ago, I think it was okay for the CMO, CIO, CDO capabilities to be somewhat separate. You know, that that need between channel, commerce, sales and service uh, sort of experiences were somewhat fragmented. But what we're seeing now is probably over the last 12 to 18 months, we're having more CIO, CDO and CMO conversations that we've ever had before in the business and what's becoming very obvious is it's now mission critical to the experience end-to-end little example right so a lot of uh, consumer product companies invested heavily in e-com channels uh, and have built a much heavier direct-to-consumer relationship with their consumers and that's driven a high need around service so if you think about you know you you purchased a product through online through uh, a retailer that need to then service go back when there's a problem with the product, you have an issue, the first point of contact will often be that, that direct-to-consumer channel. And so we're seeing a, a massive need to think, rethink around how contact centres work, how contact centres link in with your commerce channel and how that links in upstream to your marketing capability. We're also seeing like a massive change around headless. So Pete mentioned before our need to move to a headless world. Just in case some of my audience doesn't think we're talking about, you know, no, look, mum, no heads, headless commerce, headless, just a, a quick explainer on that one, Josh. Yeah, headless commerce is a sort of capability where commerce technology sits in the middle layer of the organisation. And what is it ena- what's it enables is um, the actual front end of each one of those commerce capabilities to be embedded into each individual channel. Um, there's a thing called an API, which is basically a technical way of interacting with that commerce capability. And a lot of organizations are moving towards that, that sort of world. And one of the major drivers behind that is, you know, exactly what we're talking about before our social commerce, seeing roughly 80% of some categories for Gen Zs, that being their primary shopping channel. And in a world where, you know, you're using TikTok and um, other channels to sell, you know, Instagram to sell products. The need to build that one unified front end is gone. And what we're seeing is companies basically moving to headless, which is the basically commerce capability and technology architecture sitting behind all of those channels. And, you know, I I sort of said to a client the other day, integration, because of that integration, is back in a big way. How is the relationship going between the CMO, the CIO, the CTO, that sort of integration bit? Are they recognising that, you know, there needs to be uh, more collaboration on that? I think absolutely. I mean, some organisations have actually combined the roles to a certain extent. So 
we're seeing the rise of a chief custom officer at some brands in Australia with that remit on not only having kind of the marketing capability, but also owning the digital channel itself. We're seeing other organizations really try to combine the C-suite up, but it is hard because the languages that each one of these capabilities talk about, you know, the, the core competencies inside the team are vastly different. And so I think there's a lot of goodwill. Um, we're seeing folks come to the table, but that, you know, ability to combine up the language models, have conversations that, you know, basically break down those silos and talk about what needs to happen at a capability level is, it's mm. a really difficult one. And, and a lot of our customers still grappling with it, frankly. Well, Peter, could you, I mean, you might have some examples of how a company or companies are making progress on this front. I um, don't need to name names or like you, please feel free. But what have they done specifically that is showing some promise here on this, everything we've talked about, you know, so far? What are some of those expectations in cost out, profitability gains, and higher customer spending? Because that's the other bit, right? Trying to increase, get your customer to spend more with the individual, or the organization in question. What does good look like, Peter? I mean, I think I touched on this probably a little bit earlier. I think what we're seeing is sort of this mix of one part is where are the, the high cost elements of running an e-com business, such as the fulfillment supply chain aspects. And so we're seeing a lot of organizations looking at how to optimize there more specifically. So that's being smarter about how to hold inventory, how to plan the inventory. So really focusing on some of that sort of you know, demand and forecast planning becomes quite key. And then thinking about how to introduce drop shipping and marketplaces into the mix to sort of alleviate some of that you know, need to hold inventory. But not all not all companies can effectively do that. So then you look at you know the next phase, which is then how do you then optimize teams and roles within teams and skills and, and get and get more efficiencies there. And then you know, I feel like we've gone forty five minutes into this. We haven't mentioned AI, so I'm going to take the honor. Yes, of- well, well done. You're a trailblazer. Look at that talking about AI because when it comes to AI, you know, I'm not saying AI is going to replace e-com roles. AI is going to become you know, an assistant very much so. And we see that today. So both for the, the user, so the, the people you know, likely you know, in George's team can use AI tools to help enhance, whether it be campaigns, promotional, pa- promotional landing pages, through to product descriptions, creative assets, all of these become more ways of driving efficiencies to get higher capacity and throughput of activity, which then subsequently then leads to how do I drive more sales and revenue through my channel? And then to what Josh sort of highlighted around the, the world of headless is then how can organizations start to really be empowered to start to sell differently? So rather than just having to sell through you know, your own app today and expect people to come find you, how can I then start to sell through third-party services? How can I start to sell through different channels? It doesn't have to be all the popular social channels. It's like, how can I then sell through QR codes? If I've got a retail store, how can I then set up kiosks in my in my stores to start mm. selling? And then the wraparound of loyalty around all of this and the whole 1P customer data becomes key. So I think we're seeing the sort of top-line sales and revenue achievement through getting more features more capability, more offers and more campaigns out the door, whilst also from the back end, reducing the cost when it comes to how to serve customers in a more fulfillment supply chain sense. Um, At a really big aggregate level, is physical retail still more profitable than e-com across the piece or how would we carve that up? What does that look like? I think more generally, yes, it is. 
I think, like I said, I think every everything is nuanced in terms of the types of industries mm. and the types. I mean, you know, grocery is a very different retail model than you know, what Maya is as an example versus mm. you know, what Bunnings would be. Each have different pressures when it comes to running retail operations, different investments in store locations, fit outs, maintenance and stuff. So net net, running a pure retail business you know, is in lots of cases more profitable. Online, in certain cases, becomes super profitable for different types of industry verticals. You know, you can have a really highly profitable online business with a team of five people running a you know, three four hundred million dollar operation, and you know, because you've got thirty SKUs and you're selling through a, a simple Shopify shop front, you, know, you don't need a lot of complexity to be able to sell a lot online. You know, the complexities typically come when you've got different points of presences different supply chains to be dealing with and it's not the cost you know complexity equals cost cost really um yeah georgia interesting you know both peter and and josh talk about a big focus on on tech and the back end your region for l'oreal i think is uh, one of the first in l'oreal's world to deploy a customer data platform or as as the industry calls it a cdp what is that going to do for your business now and is it particularly around e-com or is it much uh, a broader um sort of remit there yeah, absolutely. Look, L'Oreal Australia New Zealand sits within the L'Oreal Sapmina region, which is everything from Morocco to India to the Gulf countries as well and Southeast Asia. So given the size of our e-commerce business, we we have been one of the first to implement a CDP and it's fairly new for us, to be honest. So we have the technology, which is great. We're now focusing on a whole test and learn phase with the CDP um, to understand various use cases, impact on ROI, uplift. And then 24 or 2024 is really around defining and building our audience strategy, utilising the CDP to activate. We believe it will unlock um, personalisation at scale, and really the ROI increase across the broader media mix as well as sort of increased efficiencies in the way that we work. So we're super excited by it. I think we've got the technology thanks to our sort of global team and our our zone teams. So we really now need to focus on the use cases, understanding the test and learn approach and then getting some momentum next year. Georgia, just out of interest, We've talked sort of broadly about direct-to-consumer, you've got pure plays, you've got marketplaces like Amazon. Where is the online e-commerce momentum landing for L'Oreal? And I know you've got different categories, but is there is there some channels that are traveling and driving harder and faster for you than others? Look, it's interesting. We, we have grown our own D2C business in this market, which is quite unique to other L'Oreal markets. I'd say other L'Oreal markets really focus on the pure players and the e-retailers as, as the key as the keys to driving growth. So we're quite unique in this market that we have a strong D2C presence. And we want to make sure that we maintain that. We Where we do believe is there is further growth next year is is how we partner with our pure players and e-retailers in new and different ways. And I think these retailers are becoming more and more sophisticated in in what they can offer us as a as a you know leading beauty beauty brand and, and group of com- group of brands and how we have stronger joint business partners with some of these key players will be crucial to our success going forward. So yeah, we're really excited what about what that how that can look different next year and how that can unlock more opportunity for us. I guess that's how the CDP can help too in closing that loop. If you're starting to go away from your own sites like DDC, you can start to close the loop on exposure and research and transaction, Georgia, I guess. Absolutely. 
Josh, um, this all feeds into your observations on how uniting tech and the need for even MarTech on the demand side. We've talked a lot about, you know, underneath getting profitable, optimised, more efficient to be profitable, more sustainable. The demand side, which is obviously trying to acquire new customers, bringing more customers into, say, your e-com site, what is happening in, in all that? There is some new sort of alliances and, and respect, perhaps, coming from different parts of the organisation. Oh, absolutely. So you know, at Accenture Song, we've actually looked at trying to combine up um, end-to-end offering across marketing, sales and service, our e-com and our, um, and our digital products team, largely because actually what we've seen is all of these things are converging, as I meant before. But as a result, the technology stacks are also converging. So we're seeing, you know, the big big commerce plays out there looking at moving into end-to-end, into marketing, et cetera. We're also seeing more and more um, need to combine up through data. And, we, you know, I think a few folks on the podcast so far have talked about CDP, but we're, we're seeing CDP as a real driver of innovation back into these various channels. It's a bit of a test. Why, why is that? Why are they seeing upside on that? Because I think what we're using is the data to drive the the um, analysis across what the ROI is downstream and the need to put the customer at the centre around that lifetime value driver, which is something that the marketing folks have been talking about for years, but actually using that in both loyalty and in commerce channels um, and in social and into digital products is something that we're seeing that real convergence in. And that's not something that I think was available previously. I think there was a need, some organisations that were stitching it together, but these platforms and these technologies are allowing, you know, the combination of all of these capabilities into a single view of what the customer value actually looks like. On that demand side, Josh, is it more on what Peter talked to earlier about trying to drive more transactions from your existing customer base or how much of this is actually going out into the beyond a company's customers to find the new ones is it both working i think it is both but it's also about um about retention as well so you know especially in the banking world um one of the biggest impacts in the banking world was folks coming off interest rates right so most people on fixed interest rates and so really retention of that customer base was a big driver so you Mm. saw a lot of banks investing in customer data into their marketing and into their ultimately some of their commerce capabilities as well allowing them to try to retain customers through that use of data. So I think Mm. it depends on the category. We're also seeing some retailers trying to build, as I mentioned before, a more direct-to-consumer relationship with their customers, whereas previously they might have used, you know, the the likes of JB Hi-Fi for consumer product goods and electronic goods. We're seeing a much more drive to want to drive a direct-to-consumer experience through commerce, which is then also driving, you know, a better understanding of what how we can actually market through a B two C channel rather than a, a direct B two B channel. Yeah, interesting, Georgia. While we're on that on the demand side, um, you're a big fan. You mentioned it a bit earlier. Um, you're a big fan of social commerce. What interests you most about that? Why do you see that as having such a big upside? And I guess it might be a bit to do with the category you're in. Yeah, I do think it has a lot to do with the category. I mean, for beauty, social commerce has been a game changer. We know that from other markets, but even within Australia here, consumers are spending or beauty consumers are spending, you know, so much time online and engaging with beauty content on TikTok, on Meta. And we know that when they do that, they're, you know, they're more likely to sort of understand a brand. And I think social specifically plays that real educational role for the consumer as well. You can understand about the latest mascara or the 
you know, the the efficacy of a moisturiser, for example. So based on the time that the consumer is spending, the, the role of the channel being more of that educational type role, we do see it as a key driver of growth. In other L'Oreal markets like Indonesia, for example, they've seen the rise of live streaming specifically really drive growth for them. In Australia, our market's slightly, quite a little bit more diverse. Um, So we're looking at growth coming from conversational commerce, like WhatsApp and live chat, influencers as as affiliates, looking at how we work with the super apps being Weibo and WeChat, as well as TikTok and Meta. And then how do we play more in the live eventing space when when relevant? So if there is a, you know, a key event like Christmas or Mother's Day, how do we ensure that we're 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 playing in that live eventing space at a relevant time? Um, conversational mm. commerce is an interesting one. We currently operate WhatsApp for Kiehl's through their sort of boutiques, and we're kind of looking to scale that across other D2C sites. So I think it's a really interesting space and one that is, you know, evolving and is quite specific to each market, as I mentioned, Indonesia, really focused on live streaming. What, you know, what we kind of focus on is is very much where the Australian consumer is at. Conversational commerce, um, for those that perhaps are not as sophisticated or as advanced as the panel that includes me, conversational commerce is what, uh, Georgia? So that allows you, um, so for example, with our Kiehl's boutiques, we have a beauty advisor talking to consumers through WhatsApp post a sort of purchase around um, how they might uh, utilise the products that they've purchased, what other products they might be able to add to their routine to enhance, you know, their beauty routine. So it's really that one-to-one personalised communication. Mm-hmm through WhatsApp, which we know is, um, you know, a very engaging uh, platform for that one-to-one communication. Adam, Georgia talked about social commerce. I guess this is part of News Corp's grand challenge, isn't it, to be more relevant in direct commerce for companies like L'Oreal? Can you pull this off? Are you actually able to do something that Georgia says, I didn't know you could do that, Adam? That's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, our core strength's always been in brand marketing. Um, and helping brands grow and, you know, think of that as upper funnel. But a big focus of News Corp's strategy over the last couple of years has been to extend our coverage of the funnel, to, you know, start providing solutions that are, uh, you know, attracting consumers when they're much closer to the purchase, help driving actual purchase outcomes. Uh, You know, we've got a whole suite of ways we're we're addressing that. I mean, there's obviously the e-commerce content that I spoke to earlier, where we're actually writing a whole bunch of content that's really designed for consumers who are, you know, shopping pretty much in that moment. We've also extended, you know, some of these concepts to our ad products. We now have shoppable ads. You can actually purchase from within our ads for, um, you know, companies that integrate with our, with our capabilities. And, you know, you know, companies like L'Oreal and those sort of beauty products, they're highly suitable for those sort of solutions. You know, this is all obviously underpinned by the Intent Connect data platform, which enables you to target ads to highly relevant consumers, um, which is, you know, where a lot of the money's been going in, you know, recently to platforms like Google and Meta, that, that's a core of what they offer, you know, being able to offer interest targeting. That's something we're now able to do too. But, you know, we differentiate ourselves in that you can't really trust every ad you see in Facebook or on social. I mean, anyone can kind of advertise there. You might want to probably check out before you, you know, do a bit of research before you actually just buy anything you're seeing around about there. Our environment, you know, is particularly credible. You know, it, it's trustworthy. Our content's, you know, independent and respected. And even the ads on our network, you know, you wouldn't expect to see an ad for, you know, an untrustworthy brand on a News Corp publication. And, and that, you know, that's part of the, 
um, the quality of our environment. So, you know, we're, we're offering those sort of solutions from, you know, affiliate click-off links where you can buy on the consumer site, but also, you know, you've got shoppable solutions within our environment now as well. Adam, you're not long out of uh, Kogan in an online retail context. What was yeah. keeping you up at night uh, there before you came into publishing and e-commerce? Some of the, I mean, the big one was obviously, I think what Peter touched on earlier, which is really around finding that profitable model. I mean, e-commerce has always had a few core rules to how it needs to work. One is, you know, it needs to work, you know, it works at scale. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly variable cost model. So you've got, you know, a bunch of fixed costs, but a lot of your costs then become variable. So it works at scale. And, you know, finding a product margin and a differentiation in terms of what you're selling so that you can actually make some profit. So, that, you know, that was a big focus of ours mm. at Kogan who have you know, really good expertise in certain categories and what they do and, and you know, their supply chain. Um, you know, when I was at Catch, you know, they had a particular, you know, strength, you know, the discount and off-market space and obviously Temple and Webster in the, in the home goods space. Peter mentioned, Adam, that marketplaces like or online players like uh, Kogan might be, might be losing some share to Amazon. What's your sense on that? I think Amazon, you know, are going to be pretty hard to beat in the particular area of, you know, product and price, you know, range. Like they're going, they're going to have a huge range. They're going to compete very hard on price. So it's incumbent on everyone else and all the other players to, you know, you, you, can, you can compete with that to an extent, but it can't be the core of what you do. You need to have, um, you know, a core offering that differentiates you, gives you, you know, a high margin. Um, and, you know, that, that's a real strength of a company like Kogan's, for example. Um, you know, where they've got a, you know, a particular strength in a completely branded and owned supply chain in electronics and TVs and brown goods. So, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, that part of their business, and obviously they've got a strong brand in that space that's extended to mobile plans and things like that. So, you know, they've got their own, you know, I'd say that, you know, they're going to be better and better at focusing on their strengths or their, you know, competitive advantage. A company like Temple and Webster obviously operate more in the bulky space and, and a particular category and, you know, area of expertise there. But, you know, others, you know, you, you got to find a way to differentiate and not just be another Me Too marketplace. So, you know, most marketplaces are going to be bolted on to existing retailers and those existing retailers cannot rely on that marketplace for their profit or, or growth. It can be, you know, fed into a broader strategy, but, you know, they've got to have a core offering that has, you know, good margins, is differentiated and is, you know, ties well to what the consumers expect from their brand. One final question is around talent and capability, which is probably as big as everything else that we've been talking about. What are the bigger points of tension there, Georgia, trying to find people in e-com and the rest? How are you going with your talent and, and your capabilities? Are you having to re reprogram, if you like? Yeah, great question, Paul, and one that I'm very passionate about, obviously, key, key to success. At L'Oreal, we believe that transformation is constant in this kind of new world. Therefore, everything we need to do is about upskilling, new skilling and reskilling our teams on a permanent basis. So we have a huge focus of this globally within our zone and locally as well. In terms of talent, we've actually had quite a focus on e-com talent in our business and we have talent not only within the CDMO team, which is my team, but then also through all of the divisions um, and I think we're, if anything we're, we're quite strong there and now we need to sort of diversify a little bit more and cover off our other growth areas so advocacy and content how do we organize ourselves in new and different ways regarding that the consumer data piece linked to CDP how do we ensure that we've got talent 
within the CDMO team, but then throughout the business to to drive that forward, as well as media optimization as well. We've actually just completed a project to redefine capabilities within marketing and digital and are very focused on A, bringing in the right talent, but B, upskilling, new skilling, reskilling our teams for what will be a constant transformational a couple of years. Yeah, it's such a big one, isn't it? Yeah, I'd like to see that. Josh, um, just quickly, um, in terms of talent in your area? Yeah, definitely. We're seeing the need for those enterprise architects, folks that can understand the end-to-end solutions across all of the capabilities that we spoke about. And then the other thing we're seeing a, a lot of is on top of the need to cross-skill and reskill resources across platforms, we're absolutely seeing at Accenture, you know, we put a $3 billion investment into Gen AI, and part of the investment goes into building new capability and understanding how use cases in Gen AI can actually drive into the customer customer channel. And that includes in-commerce, right, uh, end-to-end. So how do we take away the the work that's low value and move folks into a high value kind of a place, as well as build co-pilot into things like content supply chain and the rest of them. Adam, and in a publishing context, an e-commerce might even be harder, I guess, because it's new territory. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we have similar problems to the others in terms of getting quality around, you know, digital marketing and data. But, you know, for us, the biggest problem is finding, you know, experienced, independent writers who are committed to the space because it is relatively new in the publishing area. Yeah, so not having to rely on going abroad or, uh, you know, people who really know the Australian market and know products and uh, editorial focused. Peter, for you, uh, both at Essential Song, but also the market, what's the, the, the biggest struggle, the biggest areas where the gaps are still needed to fill? Oh, look, I think, I think Georgia and, and Josh have sort of touched on some of the, the areas. And I think more to probably what George is experiencing, I think finding talent that is able to think across mm. the spectrum of what is digital. I think when we think about what sort of the very specific functional skills like architects and engineers and so forth that they're, they're always in high demand and high need but it's people that i think you can think holistically around the digital <coughs> and customer network and going right how am i going to connect this customer journey and experience through all of my channels and through all my loyalty programs across all of my products and so all my pricing and promotions are all managed right versus having independent people being really good at specific things i think is having people that are probably more you know architects across a customer Joining the dots, and that they're hard, that's a hard sort of person to find, isn't it? Full stop. I think to a certain extent it's a new skill set, Paul, in the yeah, market. Right. Yeah. Peter, I might just get you to wrap up final, final on, on the next two years. What's the big, for you, the big points of focus and, and watch outs? I'll limit it to two. I think what we're seeing is I think Amazon's going to make forever ongoing large investments in this market. I feel that their business will you know, likely double in size over the next couple of years, which is going to then start to really have an impact, I think, to retailers, you know, probably knocking off the pure players, but then going into particular categories and really starting to carve out. And I think what we're going to see is a lot of change happening across the sector over the next couple of years there. The second thing I think is really what we're seeing is retail media. And I think a lot of organizations are going, right, we've got X amount of customers, million, hundreds of thousands, whatever it may be. I've now got a, a really successful loyalty program. Now I've got all these visitations. I've got all these eyeballs and audiences that are living both digitally and physically. How can I start to actually build new business models and new revenue streams? And I think we'll see is to compete with the likes of an Amazon, particularly as the likes of price become really sensitive. 
investments in retail media and start to think about how to extract further mm. opportunities of business will will be where I think organizations will start to make the investments into. Georgia, Peter, Adam, Josh, uh, great conversation. I think we probably need another five hours to unpack everything. Thanks for joining and may the online commerce forces be with you. Thanks for joining. No worries. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.